1: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicuslive for tickets.
2: Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop for tickets for sporting events, music concerts, and more. Use the promo code HANGUP in the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first purchase. Or shop online at SeatGeek.com. Hang Up and Listen is also brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
3: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 5th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll discuss the collapse of the Washington Nationals and the non-collapsing teams that did, in fact, make the baseball playoffs. Soccer writer Ken Early will join us to assess the chaos at Chelsea, where the defending Premier League champions are in 16th place after eight games, which is not
4: good. They're in the relegation zone. Not really. (laughs) <laughs> you just like saying relegation zone. I just like zone. saying relegation zone. They're one, they're one above the relegation <laughs> zone. And
2: we'll talk about the superhuman feats of LSU running back Leonard Fournette and whether he should sit out a year of college football to prepare for the pros. Joining me in DC is Stefan Fatsis, a man who's never been in anyone's relegation zone, maybe it's some early relationships, yeah. when he was just kind of figuring out the emotional intelligence wasn't, you know, maybe he wasn't mentally. Ready to go pro in dating, but he's there now.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and just an all around swell guy.
4: That's a perfect I- assessment of my early dating life.
2: <laughs> You're in the relegation zone or the friend zone or <laughs> both? Both. <laughs> uh, with us from New York, as always, is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca, an enthusiastic dancer. Better natural gifts in the dating realm. Yeah, probably one of those guys who uh,
4: started in like the fourth division. I'm uh-huh. guessing, right, Pesca? Yeah, in the dating world. Movement when was right your out. first? But climbed. When was your climbed. first
2: slow dance?
0: Sixth grade? Seventh grade? Uh, well, you know, Stairway to Heaven was a popular last number, yeah. but then it awkwardly turned into the fast heavy metal. So it's a, it's slow then fast dance. I prefer the more of the Layla fast then slow dance. <laughs>
2: Uh, there's a general generational divide here because my last dance was End of the Road by Voice to Men, which was I always felt was a little bit on the nose. Yeah. They were just—they really kind of drilled into that specific marketing niche, and they got it. All credit to them.
0: But that was the dance that took you from being a boy to took you from to being a man. I went to a bar mitzvah. It was on the nose in that way. Speaking of becoming a man, I went to a bar mitzvah this weekend, and nothing says you've become a man more than bowling, arcade games, and free giveaway (laughs) neon socks for the girls. These are adults now. Did, they, did did they have? Uh, did they hire some fluffers to get things moving on the on the dance floor? Holy Christ! I don't think you know what fluffer means. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, there were two guys who were good, who were adept at break.
4: I've, I've taken to calling them fluffers. All I mean, right. it's really an analogous situation. That's
2: a great working podcast uh, <laughs> yeah. subject. Yeah. All right, Whimsy Watch. What's your name week... and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Whimsy Watch week two, the whim, the whimsying. Okay, I've got. I I wrote down four this week. Maybe I'm getting a little too excited about the return of whimsy. Should I just go through my list, or should I read? Let's go through because I I
4: did not watch much football this weekend. All
2: right, Stedman Bailey of the Rams scored a touchdown and then used the football as a pillow in the end zone. I had not seen that one before. That in the Saints game, the um, uh, Kyrie Robinson scored a touchdown and used the uh, football to do that uh, dance from Gangnam Style. And the official actually called using the football as a prop. Like that was the announced mm-hmm. penalty. But Stedman Bailey, they did not call using the football as a pillow.
0: I saw as a somebody so
4: use the as football whimsy. as a as a horse, and was doing a little gallop in the end zone. Was that in college?
0: That possibly? might have been Gangnam style.
2: Yeah, Stephan, you just revealed that you do not know what the Gangnam style, I know the dances. Gangnam style dance is. I saw
0: I saw one, <laughs> one <laughs> of the guys, I saw one of the guys using sex What's as a weapon <laughs>
2: of war. <laughs> uh martellus bennett on jay cutler whimsy item two just moving along they threw rocks at jesus and jesus was an excellent guy who did a lot of awesome stuff (laughs) does that count as whimsy counts as theology (laughs) (laughs) all right this is special for for stefan this is whimsy for stefan kicker whimsy uh no close though what's the other thing you like uh, don't answer that. Oh. Browns-Chargers, there was a moment in the game oh my where it was third and 13 with 13-13 to oh. go in the third quarter, three on the play clock, and the score was 13-13. Oh, my God. That is awesome. I don't think they're on the 13-yard line, though. There are so many other 13s. If the ball
4: had been at midfield at the end of the third quarter,
0: or on the 33,
4: that would have been that good. Is,
2: that is whimsy for Stefan. Thank you.
0: Whims, and I got one uh, nominee for ambivalent whimsy, Bivalence, which is where Jonathan Stewart ball pops in the air. But uh, the tight end on the Panthers, Dickinson, Dickerson, Dixon, picks it up, runs in the touchdown. So half the team's congratulating him on his fine play. But Stewart, at the same time, has to be consoled. That's the sort of thing that gets you benched. I can't
2: imagine anything as whimsy where the highlight would involve Chris Berman going, whoop.
4: Yeah, (laughs) automatic disqualification.
2: My final whimsy was the Saints field goal attempt that went off the upright at the end of regulation in the Sunday night game, where the large, rotund man showed his belly to try to apparently steer the ball through because that's what bellies do. Yeah. Try to steer the ball through. Um, That was whimsy. That was crowd whimsy.
4: Crowd whimsy. Lesser category of whimsy.
2: Fair enough. Right. They don't have to put on their game face. All right. Our bonus segment. or <laughs> Their game bellies. Our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week. We will go through a list of the worst plays in NFL history, only a few of which involve kickers. Not a disproportionate amount, the exact amount uh, proportionate to their representation in the league. One out of 53? Uh, well, 45 on the, on the active roster. To hear this bonus segment, to hear the worst plays in NFL history, and to hear other bonus segments on other Slate and Panoply shows, uh, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangup plus. You can get a free two-week trial at slate.com hangupplus hangup plus. On Saturday in Queens, the Washington Nationals' Max Scherzer tossed his second no-hitter of the season against the New York Mets, striking out 17 batters and walking none. This was arguably the best individual pitching performance in baseball history. It was at the very least the first game ever in which anyone met all of those individual parameters. No hitter, 17 strikeouts, no walks. This was really the perfect way to end the national season, one in which the makers' favorites to win the World Series put up some incredible Individual performances from Scherzer, from presumptive National League MVP Bryce Harper, feats that in the end were totally irrelevant. Team finished just 83 and 79, seven games behind the first place Mets. We can marvel at the Nats' collapse in Barry's uh, for Lugos forensically analyzed three part series for the Washington Post. Actually, maybe the perfect way to end the Nats' season was to fire manager Matt Williams, which happened on Monday. Uh, Stefan, the uh, Jonathan Papelbaum choke of Bryce Harper sort of emblematic of this team. It's failures. It's dumbassery. What did you make of, of what happened to
4: the Nationals this year? The implosion? It was an implosion. It was fantastic implosion by implosion standards. I mean, you know, 30 years ago in the Bronx, Jonathan Papelbaum sticking his hand on Bryce Harper's neck would have been, you know, would have been fodder for talking about what a you know, zoo and the the team rallies and you know, but of course the Nationals didn't win their division. If they had won the division, it would have been, oh, what a crazy clubhouse and what a what a what an atmosphere. Um, this was just assholery to the nth degree. I mean, they brought Papelbon in, demoted their closer Drew Storen, who I think was twenty nine of thirty one in safe situations at the point where they brought Papelbon in. And that clearly affected the team. You know, forensically, you'd mentioned forensic analysis. Forensically, bringing in Papelbon might have seemed like a fine idea. You basically have two closers. You moved Drew store into the eighth inning. In terms of chemistry, this real thing that does is not quantifiable. But clearly, when you bring an asshole into your midst, it does affect how you feel about your work environment. And something changed there. I mean, in addition to the fact that the Nationals went through a lot of injuries and they had a manager who managed by the book in almost every situation where he was questioned and his judgment was called into question.
0: You know, it's interesting. First of all, in the Scherzer no-hitter, one of the finest games ever, against a team that wasn't trying. I mean, the Mets, like, as a Mets fan, I found out the next day Scherzer no-hit the team and my reaction was, eh, who cares. So that's <laughs> never happened before. <laughs> if, if,
2: you had, if you had been engaged fully in the game, that never would have happened.
0: Yeah, that's right. I would have been sending those <laughs> been vibes, watching the game. Those good vibes. A couple of points about the Nationals. They were projected, I don't know what their Pythagorean or whatever their uh, Pocota projections were, but I know their Vegas projections before the season were to have 93 wins. They wound up having 83 wins. But if you look at, now I am going to quote their Pythag. Their Pythag win loss was 89 wins. So they got a little unlucky by the number of wins they had. I think the Pythagorean score is a better indicator. And in fact, when we talk about the Blue Jays, one of the reasons I really thought they'd be good even without adding pitching was their Pythagorean score was much better than their regular
2: score. To explain that, it's a formula based on how many runs you score and how many you allow. You look at those values and it's generally a very accurate way to describe or project Um, wins and losses. Right.
0: And one of... I don't think it was Nate Silver. I actually think it was one of the guys at Baseball Prospectus. They did a uh, study where they showed that, you know, a lot of baseball, a lot of being good is not just hitting the ball, but hitting the ball in clusters. You know, three guys in an inning get hits, you score a run, and then you don't do that for another three innings. You still have that run for that inning. If you spread out three hits over three innings, it could be the same three guys. You don't get a run. So clustering runs, things that are just about chance, things that are just about the vagaries of chance... You know, you add that all in, they underperformed a little bit, a little bit. I think if you take, they underperformed by four wins, if you look at their Pythag number, not their actual number. And since Bryce Harper overperformed by so much, and since Scherzer was good, and since Strasburg, after that disastrous start, wasn't that bad, you know, they really had, they had a terrible um, season from um, Ian Desmond, a uh, surprisingly terrible season. Zimmerman, you know, he's never healthy, so I don't know what you expect from him. They had a couple players who underperformed. Bryce Harper overperformed. And then you also had the Mets, who were better than expected, the team in their division. So it's not as huge a disaster as maybe you would think. That said, I well, do think well, their manager pu- pu- is rather bad.
2: Yeah, pushing back on that, I mean, a way that you can underperform your Pythagorean Expectation is to have a bad bullpen to lose a bunch of close games, and the way that the Nationals lost a lot of these games, they lost six in a row to the Mets in these very crucial series. And the way that they lost those games was bad bullpen performance, blowing leads, and poor managerial decisions. At least those two factors played a large part. I mean, you can't say it was a hundred percent of the reason. And so I think you can say that they were disappointing, and you know, yes. both. Um, subjectively and objectively, and a reason that their bullpen underperformed, it's not just like pure happenstance, it's because they brought in this guy, they made the affirmative decision to bring in Papelbon, who performed horribly and was just a total asshole who it seemed like everyone on the team hated. So I think it is fair to call into question management. But I I just wanted to identify him as a particular strain of American dumbass, which is the baseball dumbass. Just sort of similar to Donald Trump, very well paid, xenophobic, prone to taking extreme offense at of very innocuous actions. Did you guys see the recent USA Today story that said like two thirds of fights or skirmishes or whatever you want to call stupid baseball imbroglios were between white players and Latino players? Mm-hmm. And just the, and this, they quoted this guy, Bud Norris, this pitcher who's like, well, yeah, that makes total sense to me because. All the Latino players don't really know how to play baseball, they,
0: <laughs> and that's exactly the quote you want. They don't know, they know how to play,
2: play baseball the right way, right? Yeah, like they're coming, they they come to America, and they just uh, you know they need to learn how to play play the game the American way. It's like very very open, very open arms. They celebrate, but, they have fun, they exult in their successes. Well, credit to Papelbon for for choking a white guy, but other sure. than other than that, he just. It's sort of like you know Kurt Schilling's Facebook page. It's like you cannot ima- can you imagine being in the clubhouse and having to like work with this guy for like he wasn't even there for the full season. Like I I cannot imagine having to to share a room with him. Um, so congratulations to the Nats for you know not making the playoffs and being able to go home to their
0: families. If a if a hitter cannot compartmentalize his relationship with a relief pitcher, I don't blame Harper. Even the other way around, I say you can have the biggest asshole in the world. If he's the closer, who cares? Just have him close. It's that Papelbon didn't close. So the instigation of their
2: argument was that Papelbon, in a fit of peak, uh, hit Manny Machado of the Orioles and Harper said out loud, didn't keep it in the clubhouse. He was like, "Oh, I guess that means they're going to hit me tomorrow." Yeah. And then Papelbon like contrived to criticize Harper publicly in a heated way because Harper supposedly didn't run a pop out, which he did in fact run out. So you have like the most underperforming player on the team just looking for an excuse to attack and choke the best performing player on the team. That does seem like a recipe for unhappiness.
0: But it also, also you know, Williams set the tone by putting the um, doesn't run out singles hard enough tag on Harper. Harper, the youngest guy, the youngest hitter in baseball, turns out to be by far the best player on that team arguably, not even a close argument, the league. How does this guy not get deference? And he plays the game the right way? I don't know. He, the guy didn't run out a couple of uh, ground balls that wouldn't have... Uh, Resulted in a base hit anyway. Poor poor, poor Harper. Poor Harper. So, Mike, let's
2: uh, talk about teams that outperformed expectations or mm. at least uh, made the playoffs. Your, al- they... Or at
0: least your expectations.
2: Right. Yes. So the two teams that kind of have the, the largest droughts, um, the Blue Jays and all of Major League Baseball had gone the longest without making the playoffs, more than 20 years. And then the Cubs, obviously have gone 4,000 years without winning the World Series. Um, You mentioned the Blue Jays before um, having a a good Pythag. What do you make of that team?
0: Well, they were. I think they're great, and I think that um, even before they acquired Price and went out and won the uh, trading deadline, they they were set to make the playoffs. Even though it didn't seem like they were set to make the playoffs, you know. So their Pythag this year they ended up with ninety three wins. Their Pythag was one hundred and two and sixty, and most of it accumulated when they were a one game under five hundred team, a little bit past the All Star break. So they were just blowing people out because they had the best. When you hit, Yeah, when you hit home runs at that rate and, you know, the pitching maybe didn't show up all the time. But now your third starter is R.A. Dickey. I think that uh, they are deservedly the favorite to win the World Series, although we know in baseball what that means, which is not much.
4: And there's something admirable about the way that the Blue Jays went all in and decided even when they were – Yeah, they were seven games behind the Yankees in the division. I mean, there was a recognition that the Yankees weren't a strong division leader. They weren't going to run away with it. The Blue Jays might not have to settle for a wild card. There was a recognition that in the American League, 87 wins was probably going to get you to the wild card. And they went all in and there is something to, to recognize here in the front office and Alex Anthopoulos being willing to make these trades and, and trade some, some highly valued prospects, particularly to the Tigers for David Price. And then also acquiring Troy Tulowitzki to play shortstop. I mean, this was a, this was seemed to me very savvy as a, as baseball decision making goes to recognize where you sit in the division you sit in the league you sit and making a move now to do well.
2: Well, there are parallels here to the Royals, um, and the interesting thing about baseball is that you can take a totally different approach to how you stack your lineup, how you construct your roster, and be successful. You saw that with, you know, if you just look in the Bay Area, like the Giants and the A's take two opposite approaches and have, have both succeeded with them. But um, so the Royals last year, last in the majors in home runs, had a lot of guys who could run fast and play defense, make it all to the Series. Well, that was the, the entire series.
4: meme of the playoffs last year.
2: And then the Blue Jays hit a lot of home runs, amazing offense, complete opposite. But the similarity is that at a certain point, both front offices of both these teams, I think, recognized, and the Royals were criticized for trading young talent for James Shields, a pitcher, but I think they recognized that these fan bases were so starved that there is a value even if you're trading away young talent, even if maybe it's not you know, the quote-unquote smartest long-term thing to do, that it is a smart long-term decision to keep the fan base engaged. And you've seen this in Canada where TV ratings have gone up by more than 100%, attendance has gone up. People wanted to root for this team and people yeah. people wanted a team to root for. And in Kansas City, it's carried over to this year where attendance has increased. And as um, a baseball owner or a GM, you need to think about these like real-world considerations. Of you want your fans to like your team,
0: yeah. And I'll also say this: that there are a couple things that the Blue Jays have done that run counter to some of the more annoying trends in baseball. they trade for Donaldson. Like we give Billy Bean a lot of credit. I never understood it then. I don't understand it now. Donaldson was. You know, clearly one of the best players in the game. His average wasn't as high when the A's let him go, but a power hitter. This guy deserves to win. He's a real arguably, you know, you could give it to Trout every year, but he could, he'll probably win the MVP this year, Donaldson. And when the Blue Jays got him, he was under club control. So it was one of those, one of those trades where everyone said, except for the fact that Billy Bean's a genius, I don't get it. So that was a great trade. <laughs> and the other thing that I find heartening is you have Marcus Stroman, who had an injury that I think would have shelved him by most teams, but he wanted to rehab it. The team encouraged him. No agent got in the way. So I understand you guys talked about Matt Harvey, but it was a bit distancing to me, and it did alienate the fan base, all the uh, Michigas over innings count and his agent. And then, of course, the Strasbourg thing a couple years ago, hey, you want to call me insensitive? I think it's really important to try to play hard and take advantage of the chances you have. And that's why fans love you. If you fight through injury and come back and help the team, fans are going to love you. And the Blue Jays had a bunch of that stuff going on. I want to call you passionate. Okay. I
2: call you... I'm going to call you a little fiery sometimes, but your heart's with, in the right I put, place. I
0: put my rotator cuff on my sleeve.
2: Um, all right, right, let's and let's put in a quick word for the Cubs. It's always hard to know which teams to emotionally invest in, especially the ones that are in these one-game wildcard playoffs. The Cubs and the Pirates have the second and third best records in all of baseball. It just happens that the team that won their division, the Cardinals, has the best record. So these two... It just happens get, that baseball still has the anachronistic and silly... method
4: of of using divisions.
2: Yeah, so these two teams get shunted into the one-game playoff. It is going to be a great pitching matchup, Jake Arrieta for the Cubs and uh, Garrett Cole for the Pirates. Um, Cubs fans seem to be kind of getting their hopes up a little bit, and there is a legitimate argument to be made that this Cubs team is different, that it's built on a solid foundation. Theo Epstein came in Brought in a lot of young players that they'll be good for kind of years to come. So it's not just like a one of those years in the past where it seems like the Cubs just kind of lucked into making the playoffs. And if they didn't win, it would be another two decades. So maybe not as much agita into this one game playoff. But I guess a Cubs fan probably isn't going to feel that way. Stefan, what do you
4: what do you think about? No, Cubs fan will not feel that way. And then there is definitely there's something more lovable. Certainly, is that the word they use in Chicago? Right, lovable. Um, about them as a, as a historical franchise, I think, compared to the Red Sox. And I don't just say that because I was a Yankees fan. I am a Yankees fan. Um, but there is, their failure is not sort of badge of honor ish. And, you know, Wrigley is getting renovated. There is a modern approach taken by the Ricketts family ownership of the team, not without its own problems, including alienating um, people around the stadium, including some of the people that owned those pavilions, the 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 rooftop. A boohoo. Yeah, boohoo to them, I guess. But they are clearly taking a a business-minded approach. There was an ESPN profile of the Ricketts family that ran not long ago in which one staffer complained that, you know, we used to have a corporate owner that acted like a family, and now we have a family owner that acts like a corporation. And I'm not sure that's reason to complain too much. You can complain about the Ricketts family's politics for sure, but they clearly do seem to be taking the right modern approach in terms of renovating the stadium, trying to develop areas around the stadium, bringing in a front office that understands all aspects of baseball, committing to youth, bringing up players... You know, that can contribute immediately, even though delaying in Chris Bryant's case to get an extra year of service out of him at the beginning of the season, which didn't seem to backfire too much. Um,
2: well, this is the after a fat pope a skinny one, Mike right. Pesca theory, right? Yeah. I don't think Cubs fans are going to complain about a ruthless owner who cares about winning.
0: No. <laughs> and, and I would just add to the Ricketts, after their heart was broken by one entity that they poured their money into, Scott Walker, I really hope that this <laughs> next entity, the Cubs, will deliver. <laughs> Time for a word from our
2: sponsor this week, SeatGeek, which helps you find the best value when you're looking for tickets and is offering a great deal for our listeners, $20 off when you use our promo code, which is HANGUP. And SeatGeek is not just for the super popular hard-to-get tickets. You know, if you want to go to see preseason basketball, Nick's at Wizards on Friday at the Verizon Center. You just, like, really want to see the 15-man on the Wizards bench. They will tell you that the $3 upper-tier seats... At Verizon, that, that is a good value.
0: But then if you're if you're <laughs> a Chicago. Cubs, not name only.
2: <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a Chicago Cubs fan, you want to go to World Series game two, if such a game happens, that's gonna be a hot ticket. CQ can tell you that the Terrace reserved and field tickets at thirty five hundred twenty-two dollars each. That is a good value. Mm-hmm. So it covers the entire range, the entire spectrum of sports fan attendance, and it does a lot of things. That other ticketing sites don't pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online sellers. It shows you every ticket option available for that game, all on one page. There's also a feature called Deal Score, ranks every ticket with a one to one hundred value, plots
0: the best deals on a color coded, interactive. Map. Hey, you want to play Seat Geek Trivia? You ready? Yeah, Tuesday, I'm ready. I got, I got the app up. Tuesday, AO Wild Card, Houston Astros at New York Yankees, all right? Remember that. Monday, yes. NL Division, L.A. Dodgers at New York Mets. Give me the price of the Yankees game. Go ahead, Stefan Like guess. the cheapest ticket? Yeah, cheapest ticket. Uh, cheapest ticket for the Yankees game, 53. What do you say, Josh? I'm going to go 150. Okay, it was 61. Stefan wins that round. Now go to the Mets, keeping in mind that the Yankees was 61.
2: All right, cheapest game for the Mets. I'll say, for the Mets. T- cheapest, I'll say three twenty. Oh, that's too high. I'm going to say one seventy.
0: It's one fifty. Stefan wins the round, but hey, yes. doesn't this tell you something? And that, I got the proportions right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You knew the relationship, but Stephen. So the
2: the seed Cake mobile app uh, makes the ticket buying process seamless and easy. Easy enough for Mike Pesca to call it up <laughs> during a commercial segment. Um, once you find a ticket you want to buy, you can complete the purchase with just two quick taps. And as I mentioned at the top, we've got a great deal for Hang Up listeners. Download the free app, enter the promo code HANGUP in the app, and SeatGeek will send you $20 once you've made your first purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code HANGUP today. Last season was an unmitigated success for the Chelsea Football Club, which won the League Cup and Premier League titles in the second season of manager Jose Mourinho's second stint with the club. Chelsea has won four Premier League and one UEFA Champions League trophy since Russian billionaire and owner of the world's most expensive collection of luxury yachts. Roman Abramovich bought the club in 2003, but this year, this year has not been good. After eight matches, Chelsea is not in its usual spot near the top of the Premier League table. Instead, it is in 16th place out of 20, closer to relegation than to the top four position needed to make the Champions League. finds itself in such a poor position that no team in Premier League history has ever emerged from these depths to finish in the top four. The Blues lost at home 3-1 to to Southampton on Sunday, after which manager-slash-professional-egotist Mourinho, Launched into a seven-minute monologue that was alternately self-pitying, self-aggrandizing, and blame deflecting, which is a combination that you really have to be a special to pull off. Let's listen to a bit of that speech now.
5: I consider myself, you know, that I have a big self-esteem and a big uh, and a big ego. I consider myself the best, uh, living uh, the worst period of my of my career, the worst results of my career. Doing that as a professional hurts me a lot. During that at Chelsea hurts me twice, because it hurts me as a professional and hurts me because I like this club very, very much and it was because of that that I, that I came back. So I, I want to carry on, I want to carry on, no doubt, no doubt and I assume my responsibilities but I think it's time for everybody to assume their responsibilities because when you go down to so many individual mistakes and fear to play, they have their responsibilities, are players that are performing really, really bad individually I cannot come here and say, you and you and you and you is not is not my job, but I think, I think it's clear. I think it's clear that we are being punished by too many individual mistakes. And as I was saying, sadness brings sadness. Bad results, they attract uh, bad results. The first mistake um, is just the first because after comes another one. There is a lot
2: to unpack there. Sadness begets sadness. Joining us now is long time Chelsea observer and Mourinhoologist Ken Early. Ken writes for the Irish Times and is one of the hosts of the second Captain's Podcast. Ken, thank you for joining us during this very difficult time for all of England and really the entire world.
6: Not at all, Josh. I'm glad to be here at this difficult
2: time. (laughs) Um, What do you, uh, or how do you explain this uh, start to the season? Mourinho blamed the referees. He blamed his own players. He kind of blamed himself a little bit. Where do you kind of apportion things?
6: Um, it's really, really difficult to to say uh, what's happening with Chelsea because I mean, if it starts with the players. It starts with rock solid performers uh, who had been totally reliable for Mourinho and for uh, previous managers, suddenly um, losing form. I mean, you've got a you've got a player like Branislav Ivanovic. Uh, who's been at Chelsea since, what, 2006, 2007. He's, he's consistently been one of the best players in their team. He was one of the best players in the team as they won the championship just last year. Um, and, you know, he's he's a shadow of the man that he used to be, Nemanja Matic, um, this beast that Chelsea had in midfield. Um, also, I mean, yesterday Mourinho, or not yesterday, rather Saturday, Mourinho absolutely savaged Nemanja Matic. I mean, he, he put him on at half time. He took him off. Uh, 28 minutes after that, uh, in the immediate aftermath of Southampton scoring the goal. I mean, an incredibly humiliating uh, thing to happen to any player. And then went into detail on his failings in the post-match press conference, which was really bizarre behavior uh, from the manager. But I mean, Mourinho's obviously at a loss to know what has happened to these guys. But the fact that it seems to have happened to so many of them at sort of the same time um, it means that a lot of people are looking at Mourinho and going, "What? Sorry, what exactly? Do you, what exactly do you think is going on here?" Um, it's, I mean, we're talking about something which has been going on since the start of this season. But really, if you if you kind of look at Chelsea's form, um, they started last season like a train. Uh, they won a lot of games. They established an early lead, but the second half of the season was a little bit different. The second half of the season was a little bit scrappy. There was a lot of tense, crabbed kind of games. Where when Eden Hazard scored the winning goal in a one 0 win, um, they weren't playing that well. It's just that now, not even Eden Hazard is playing well. They're letting in goals. They've let in, you know, two goals in every single one of their games. At least two goals, I think, in all their games, apart from the one against Arsenal, which is just incredible. I mean, it's it's been a, co- a kind of a collapse. You know, it's it's almost engulfed every aspect of the club. But Mourinho, as you can hear, I don't think he's really been a steadying influence (laughs) at the heart of all this.
4: And and it does seem as if the players are beginning to chafe at some of Mourinho's comments publicly. And it also, you know, when you're talking about Chelsea, though, there's also a a, a hefty amount of schadenfreude here. I mean, there's no shortage of people that are gleeful that Chelsea is near the bottom of the table. I mean, this is a a, a club that in the last decade, uh, under Abramovich, has engendered You know, a a reputation as arrogant. The one Chelsea game I went to, fans were booing when Chelsea led because they were dissatisfied by the level of play. I mean, there is in this fan base something very New York Yankees like, to put it in American terms, uh, or Dallas Cowboys like. This expectation of success and a sort of disregard for all matter of, of, of polity.
6: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody else resents Chelsea because everybody knows that in 2003 they were going bankrupt when Roman Abramovich apparently happened to look out the window of an aircraft <laughs> I don't know if there was a helicopter or a plane that he was on. And said, what's that? It turned out to be Stamford Bridge, so he bought it. <laughs> um, you know, Abramovich, Abramovich looking for a club, having been to see Manchester United against Real Madrid in the Champions League. I mean, this is, you know, this is the uh, mythology. Who knows how true it is, really? Um, but they were going out of business. They, they were literally, they, the club was on fire. Abramovich came in, took them over, and suddenly the richest club in Europe. I mean... You know, I think even even before Chelsea got rich, a lot of the neighbouring clubs were looking forward to watching them go into administration and possibly liquidation. I mean, that's just the schadenfreude of of football fans generally. But then suddenly Chelsea, um, through this <laughs> grotesque uh, stroke of arbitrary unfairness, uh, become this uh, financial monster towering over everybody else, able to uh, buy a lot of the best players in the world, uh, win the title, win the Champions League. You know it's it's everybody else is kind of looking at this going well i mean this tells us something about life life isn't really fair it doesn't conform to any um sense of justice that we can make out um so when chelsea suddenly goes through a terrible um experience like this then yeah i think i think a lot of people are yeah a lot of people are laughing at them and in terms of their own and and maybe then it's a good thing for them because it helps them to learn too that sometimes the world doesn't always go um doesn't always go the way you want it's a life
0: lesson um, I'm looking at. I don't know if this is updated. I'm looking at the Premier Club wage bill, what we would call the payroll for 2015. It has Chelsea listed at 192 million pounds, only behind Man City at 205, Man U at 215, and they're losing to teams in the Premier League like uh, Burnley, 21 million. Never heard of Burnley, but they definitely lost to Crystal Palace, 45 million, Swansea City, 48 million. Pounds. It's not, but it's more than the best team that money can buy not playing well. I mean, these, these players, are the, are the players at each other's throats, or is it all concentrated on the manager, the coach?
6: Well, I do have to say, it, it, we'll, we'll, we can definitely talk about the coach in a second, but in terms of the wage bill, in terms of the finances, I mean, there's obviously a, you know, a correlation between um, your wage bill uh, the amount of your payroll and the um, and the success that you have, and generally the clubs that pay the most are going to be the most successful clubs because they have the best players. It's not a perfect uh, correlation, though. You know, I mean, so uh, smaller clubs can beat bigger clubs, and I think that's increasingly the case in the Premier League now, where um, you've got uh, this bizarre situation where the uh, TV deal that English football has is so gigantic. It is so disproportionately large compared to the rest of Europe that suddenly these middling teams in the Premier League are packed with players who really should be world stars play, play, or, or players who are you know world stars, who, who have the, the ability of being world stars, who should be playing for big European clubs. The example, I would say, is Andre Ayew, who scored one of the goals for Swansea uh, against Chelsea. Uh, an absolutely brilliant player, You know, a a star of the World Cup for Ghana. I'm sure the United States remembers uh, playing against this guy. He scored against Germany as well in the last World Cup. A a fantastic player from Marseille in France is now playing for Swansea City because Swansea City have got so much more money. Uh, than, than Marseille. I mean, this guy would have been playing for, you know, Milan, Inter, Valencia. But now these middle-ranking Premier League teams have more money than them. So they're playing in the Premier League. Swansea, The Swansea City team that beat Chelsea, Swansea City doesn't sound like a big football club. And, and historically has never been really a big football club. But if you look at Swansea City's team, there's a lot of really good players in it at that moment. Um, absolutely fantastic players. When they went and beat Chelsea, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't the case of oh you know the the minnows uh, have, have somehow managed to come here and get a fluke victory. They they completely outplayed them and dominated the game. Well, and, and I think you know is, it was. You, uh,
4: Ken wrote a you wrote a, a lovely piece about this just a few weeks ago, and you noted that Crystal Palace beat Chelsea, West Ham beat Liverpool, Swansea beat Man U, and and this is you know when we think of these top top Premier League teams, we think of depth on the roster that you can take out one international superstar continental superstar and bring in another and that there are guys riding the bench in the premier league who start for their national clubs um and what i think you're saying is that the influx of a few international superstars to some of these historically middling teams gives them the ability to compete that
6: they didn't have before. oh yeah i think it's Oh, it, it does. It gives them the ability to compete. I mean, it gives it gives the um, it, it's it adds something to the league in terms of. Well, I mean, first of all, there's this sort of quality players sprinkled throughout these clubs where you know usually these these types of players seldom actually turn up. But you know, you get these sort of unpredictable mm-hmm. results. The games are more difficult, I think, on average for the big teams. If you look at Real Madrid and Barcelona, most of the games that they're involved in the Spanish league are are, are, are like training sessions. You know, there's the the teams they're playing against frequently have, have budgets which are you know, less than the salary of Cristiano Ronaldo or less than the salary of Lionel Messi. And there isn't really a competition there. That's not really the case um, in the Premier League. I'm not suggesting the big Premier League teams are at the level of Real Madrid and Barcelona because they're clearly not. Um, but I do think they face tougher competition at home. In terms of the strength of the bench though, that's something which uh, at Chelsea is, is a kind of a contentious issue. Because Jose Mourinho and his uh, employers clearly have a very different estimation of how strength, strong that bench is. Jose Mourinho, uh, for the last month of the transfer window, was making increasingly, um, I mean, he, he wasn't saying it outright, but it was. If, if you've been listening to him for a while, you know where he's coming from. He's He was looking for Chelsea too by some big players. Joseph Aminio is a guy who likes to load the dice in his own favor. You know, he goes, he goes out and he's, he's got this sort of larger than life image. And, you know, he's, he he kind of almost at times seems to pretend that, uh, that he has some kind of supernatural powers or certainly supernatural insight. Um, but he does also like to make sure that he's got the best team. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he likes to make sure that he's managing the biggest spending team. And if he feels the club isn't really backing him, isn't isn't really going out there and saying, OK, we, last summer we bought Fabregas and Diego Costa. This summer we're going to go out and buy two guys on that kind of level. Then he starts to get... Discontented, you know. Suddenly, Man City are spending all this money. Manchester United are spending all this money. Why are you not spending money to support me? So that was going on. That was the thing. And Chelsea didn't really do much. And they bought Pedro at the end of the transfer window, but they didn't really give him what he was looking for. If you look at the statement Chelsea put out today in support of Mourinho, they put out this statement saying, "Oh, you know, the club uh, supports the manager. We still believe in Jose Mourinho, and we also believe that he's got the squad." To achieve his objectives so they're basically saying let's not hear any more moaning about not having uh, the quality of player that you need you do have those players go out and go out and do it
2: let's um let's put a bow on this and by having you assess my uh, argument which is that the thing that will fix what ails Chelsea is regression to the mean is that by virtue of us having this conversation when the that they're at their lowest point they will Rise because how could they not rise? And I guess the question is just how far will they get? But I think, you know, with the collection of talent they have, with the manager they have, you know, we're not going to come back in four weeks and see them at 16th in the table.
6: No, I mean, in realistic terms, I mean Mourinho himself. I think after one of their recent poor results, I mean, there'd be so many I can't remember which one it was. Sort of was laughing and saying, "Well, you know, I think I can, uh, I can, I can tell you that we're not going to get relegated. You know, I've seen, I've seen enough uh, in the quality of the squad. We're not going to go down. That's fine." Uh, and I mean, I'm sure Chelsea will, uh, will rise up from their current um, fall in state. Although whether they'll get into the Champions League has to be debatable. Nobody has ever got into the Champions League from the position Chelsea are now in. Or rather, nobody has finished higher than fifth in the Premier League from the position Chelsea are now in. So that's um, that's a difficult situation. But regression, I mean regression doesn't mean, regression does the mean that, that, that will happen absolutely. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the Mourinho story at Chelsea isn't going to end very sure. soon uh, in a, with a huge inflaming nuclear mushroom cloud.
2: <laughs> well, I hope in Ireland you're far enough from the radiation but you might want to get your lead shields ready just in case uh ken early uh thank you so much for for being with us
6: and thank you very much guys
2: ken early is a writer for the irish times and one of the hosts of the podcast second captains Hang Up and Listen is also brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater.
3: Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Um, sounds like a no. Well,
2: we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that
3: thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
5: One more
4: attack for the break. He did. LSU touchdown. 105 yards offense for LSU in the first half.
0: Gee whiz! (laughs) Here's Fournette lead blocker. He's into the secondary. Spills that guy. Sheds that one. Another touchdown for Leonard
3: Fournette.
2: That was a dream sequence that I had. over the weekend when I was fantasizing about LSU football, as I often do. Or maybe it was uh, CBS's unimpeachable Vern Lundquist describing LSU running back Leonard Fournette, who ran over, under, and around the Auburn defense last month in a 228-yard, three-touchdown performance, first of three straight 200-yard rushing games for Fournette, first player in SEC history to accomplish that, and that includes Herschel Walker and Bo Jackson, two legendary runners who Fournette has often been compared to this season. The dude is six foot one, 230 pounds, he's fast as hell, he's impossible to tackle. As a 20-year-old college sophomore, he's already one of the best running backs in the world, but NFL rules prohibit any player from turning pro until he's three years out of high school. That fact has led to calls from the liberal uh, media that Fournette should preserve his health by sitting out next season and twiddling his thumbs to get ready for the NFL draft an idea which has generated blowback from many a sports columnist and from LSU coach Les Miles, who blames, quote, a lot of people out there stirring the pot and who says he can't possibly imagine Fournette sitting out a fall and not playing football. Uh, Mike, do you want to stir the pot or do you want to reverse the rotation of the pot and de-stir it?
0: I like to look at the pot and say if it's half full or half empty. And I think that the people opposing the jump to the pros are entirely full of yes shit I was going to say shit jambalaya there are just no good argument on the side of keeping him in college no good logical argument if you want to be if you want to be honest and you say oh yeah yeah the NFL is a cartel and this protects their cartel and the illegal or and certainly unethical Suppression of free trade is one of the things that makes the league a lot easier to manage, then fine. But we're doing this to help the kid is ridiculous. That if we let him in, well, then we got to let in 12 year old ballerinas is ridiculous. (laughs) That he can't play in the pros is ridiculous. That the pros would be hurt by younger people trying to play in the pros. There is just no good argument. That's not paternalistic. That's not illogical. Except, hey, this is how we become this $10 billion business. But it's just that all the people who are you know, sticking up for the NFL, the Christine Brennans, the voices of the establishment within college football, the less Miles, Yeah, it's typical. But there's – I mean, guys, can you come up with one good argument why this guy who's going to be a beast in the NFL shouldn't be allowed to be a beast in the NFL except an injured guy in college? One good argument?
4: How about an argument for why a guy that's going to be a beast in the NFL should risk his health by playing more college football? For a coach who is, who overuses him in the pursuit of victory and the preservation of his multi million dollar salary, why that's a good thing. If I were an NFL general manager, I would want Leonard Fournette to sit out next year. I would want him to sign with an agent and pay a lot of money to train with the best trainers possible that could prepare him physically to meet the rigors of being a running back in the NFL, a lead back in the NFL for a long time. I mean, stipulating that playing in the NFL is a dumb thing for anybody to begin with for long-term mental health and physical health. Um, Get you rich. If, if you want him, <laughs> right, if you want this guy to be a successful NFL running back, he should not play college football anymore. It risks his health. And yet there are people like Christine Brennan at USA Today who continue to posit, for, you know, just completely by the, the college football coach Kool-Aid saying that, you know, Fournette wants to stay healthy. And she wrote, there's someone else who feels the same way. It's LSU coach Les Miles. Yes, Les Miles really wants to protect Leonard Fournette. You know how many times he's had Leonard Fournette run the ball in four games? 99. That's 15 more carries than anybody in the NFL in the same number of games and the 84 is Matt Forte of the Bears who's an outlier behind him top carries in the
0: NFL are 75 70 and 68 but to be well, fair he- in college he's only being tackled by guys who aren't ready for the NFL <laughs>
2: <laughs> as an LSU fan my vote on this subject counts at least three times mm-hmm. uh, what you guys vote does and I have a very strong uh, rooting interest in having Leonard Fournette of at LSU do. I want my team to succeed. I want to watch him in the uh, purple and gold. I want to uh, listen to the unimpeachable Vern Lundquist call his games this year and next year. But it's even I, even I, the most biased human on this panel cannot countenance any of these arguments. It's morally repugnant. It's not just Christine Brennan, Stuart Mandel of Fox Sports, like basically all of the kind of establishment. establishment college football writers And NFL
4: talking heads too, like Mike Mayock.
2: They're they're making actually like affirmative arguments for why he shouldn't be in the NFL. Things like he's not mentally prepared, and Fournette has actually said that himself, which is kind of the sad thing. It's that he like knows exactly the right thing to say to get like the conservative punditocracy and football fans and football coaches to like him. Well, that to me shows Um, he's
0: coachable drafting
2: coachable. <laughs> but he says, like, oh, I might be physically ready, but I'm not mentally prepared oh, to play in the NFL. And, you know, you have Christine Brennan saying that, um, you know, just the things we've heard for years about just, oh, what what value that they get from the education and the, the scholarship. And the thing about a running back that's particularly sad to me is that unlike an a 19-year-old in the NBA, where I, I still think that argument is absurd, but the entire point of this position in football is to just run and get run into. And he's just every carry that he has in college shortens his NFL NFL career, career, decreases his earning potential. He just gets injured more and more every game. And all of the language around him about how he's so powerful, he's so nobody can tackle him. He's gotten hurt in at least two out of the four games so far, kind of glancing blows. But there is no football player who can avoid getting injured. And it's not just the catastrophic injuries that guys like Marcus Lattimore has had, who is talked about in not quite these terms, but, you know, in the, in the same
4: neighborhood, South Carolina running back
2: who got hurt and never got to play in the NFL. But, you know, Todd Gurley hurt his knee, any football player, any running back who gets talked about in these terms, whether it's Earl Campbell, who now just can't walk. Or, you know, whether it's during your career after, they're or just going to get destroyed.
4: Who four years in the NFL.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and hurt his head. I mean, you're going to get destroyed. You're going to get, you know, demolished by this game. And to make an affirmative argument that this guy needs to keep taking these hits, needs to keep playing in college, and that that will be better for him, that is disgusting. That is gross. Mm-hmm. And you should re examine your value system. And for people who say that oh like you're making you're imposing your choice and your value system on him and it's you know selfish and a distraction and just stirring the pot. I just I if you make that argument seriously, you need to like look at your life. <laughs> because you know we've talked about the the stuff about transfers. The reason that these larger issues about the morality of football or the morality of the NCA. the reason that they get discussed is because of individual cases. It's like because of a particularly despicable thing that a coach does around an individual transfer. Like people wanna hear stories about people and that's what makes a larger kind of moral argument more powerful. It's like, you, you know, sorry, like Leonard Fournette, but this is gonna get attached to you because you're by far the strongest case or why these early entry rules are absurd. I will stop talking now.
0: And what... And Okay, so let's uh, unpack, unpack, explode, mock some of the other arguments. You know, we have Jerome Bettis. We have other guys saying, well, you know, a running back could do it, a running back. And since that helps Fournette, that is true. But I think many other positions can do it. I can understand why a quarterback, it would be hard for a quarterback to learn the system. But you're going to be a rookie sometime. And a 21-year-old doesn't seem that big a difference. So, you know, quarterbacks, I think they are helped a little bit i i I guess what we like to do is we say the more mentally demanding the position is but look at amari cooper this year are you telling me without his stellar junior year it helped his draft stock all that but the way the guy stabs the football with his hands the way the guy runs past defenders the way the guy makes Derek carr look like stabler or plunkett what he couldn't go one year before there are plenty of guys and i don't even know who the you know when Andomkin Sue was a rookie, you tell me he couldn't have gone when he was twenty. He couldn't have been like a guy in a rotation on a defensive line. There let's are so be, many, so many positions that can go. Every the kicker, only, a good the, kicker, can always go.
4: Yes, the only reason that the NFL has this arbitrary rule is to to prevent the NFL from having to pay players at a younger age. The NFL, on the one hand, claims that it has the most sophisticated um, and most extensive system of scouting and analysis for players, and you're telling me they're going to draft some high school kid who isn't ready to play in the NFL? The only reason they would do that is that they felt that he had the potential to do that, and the NFL doesn't want to get into the position where they have to pay athletes to not play until they are developed. The college is a free development system for the NFL. Even though it takes miles off of these players' careers, um, You know, these are miles that m- the vast, vast majority of players wouldn't have attained in the NFL because they wouldn't necessarily be good enough. Leonard Fournette is an outlier. And to say well, outliers that... Outliers often point out the cracks in, in the, the system. system. Exactly. And so it's not as if the NFL wouldn't be able to distinguish between a player that isn't ready to play okay. in the NFL or isn't ready to contribute to a team and a player who isn't that they would be drafting on potential. They would know that explicitly.
2: Well, we're arguing this on the terms that the NFL created because the reason that fewer guys union. but the reason that fewer guys are quote unquote ready to go into the NFL out of college is because the NFL doesn't have a fucking minor league system Correct. like other Cartel. sports do. there aren't Cartel. that many jobs so baseball players get drafted at 18 and go don't go directly to the pros and still get millions of dollars that you know the, to the majors, right? Yeah, and so
4: hockey players do the same thing. Tennis has a junior circuit listen, and Bryce, lower so Bryce Harper Golf, you can work your is way
0: up. Not Mentally ready to go to the baseball, <laughs> Bryce Harper. You need a mature guy like Papelbon to calm him down. You want that mentality. <laughs> so yeah, when
2: when you hear an argument about how a guy's not ready for the NFL, just think about um, you know why the NFL exists in the way that it does, and also. This has been upheld by U.S. District Court. Maurice Claret and Mike Williams challenged it um, a a little more than a decade ago. And the ruling was, which makes sense, this is collectively bargained by um, the league and the Players Association. So that's the reason why um, it's allowed to stand legally.
5: You
4: know, what? if Leonard Fournette sat out a year, we'd indicate that he's just not competitive. I don't know why any NFL team would want him. Just not competitive. Doesn't want to play.
0: I understand why he that's uh, one of the arguments that, that we're also hearing. Act, yeah. Make, make
4: me I mean, act. I think a good, a good indication of, of the reality of this is take a read, uh, read Johnette Howard's piece on ESPN about Fournette. She quotes Herschel Walker. She talked to Marcus Dupree, um, who was the subject of that terrific documentary by our friend, John Hawk, the best that never was the, the unanimity about the fact that Leonard Fournette and she talked to Marcus Lattimore too. the unanimity is that Leonard Fournette should have the right to decide when he's ready. And the NFL team will help him make that decision by drafting him um, and to 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 take the the paternalistic approach that college coaches and many in the media and many fans who've been brainwashed take is a detriment to the intelligence and the support system that the very best football players in college have it makes me sad
2: the thing that makes me sad about the arc of his you know, one and a quarter of a season, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, college career, is that he came in with all this hype. He was the number one recruit. And one of his first games of his freshman year, he scored a touchdown, his first touchdown in college and struck the Heisman pose and got so like heavily criticized for it by the same kind of establishment media saying that he was arrogant and that he hadn't paid his dues and that he needed to be humbled. And he is. I don't know if he actually believes it, but he has internalized all of this critique to such a degree that he now speaks in just this most remarkable cliche, like out to please the like 55 year old white guy consensus around college football about it's all about team and the thing about, all I'm not mentally ready and I just, it's all about my teammates and I need to pay my dues and it all kind of feeds into this notion of you know you if if you want to make money or if you want to sit out sometime to protect your health if you want to like look after the thing in your life that could set you up and set up your family then you're selfish and you're arrogant which is you know the opposite the truth i just feel like he's been brainwashed i want to save leonard fournette before it's too late go tigers All right. Now it is time for after balls. And we talked about Chelsea a little bit, a little bit ago. And uh, Mike, the nickname of Chelsea is the blues. Yeah. Great. You one. might know that a lot of, a
0: lot, lot of national teams have that nickname too. Azari.
2: Um, but the alternate nickname Liz for Chelsea will. is the pensioners. A mm. Chelsea pensioner is someone who resides at the Royal hospital, Chelsea, which is a nursing home for ex British army uh folks and there's these these people are uh, seen at the games these uh these pensioners quite uh the opposite of the reputation of the team um but the funny thing about that is that there's this dude Ted Drake who was known for modernizing the team and banned the pensioner nickname back in the 1950s he wanted to change the image he wanted to pick a new crest but we must preserve the pensioner nickname of Chelsea do you their, think it's, one, do you think it's like an, a
0: bonafide nickname or uh, like the foul line is sometimes called the charity stripe but not in <laughs> ca- casual conversation i feel like it's more of an auburn tiger slash war eagle thing. okay so it's real people have yeah, people have t-shirts that say that all right i um, hate you goddamn pensioners
2: Mike, what is your Chelsea Pensioner?
0: So I don't mind the affectations of Chris Berman. Yes, I do. But how he will relate every player. (laughs) Yeah, how he will relate every player that he does a highlight for to music that he enjoyed in his youth. And he makes no effort to expand the references past Gary Puckett and the union gap. And the same is true, you know, NFL nicknames, a guy named Ben Jarvis Green Ellis. We don't really think very hard. We're like, hey, that kind of sounds like a law firm. Let's call him the law firm. Or when the guy on uh, St. Louis, the center fielder named uh, John Jay, they tried to tag a uh, the justice, you know, because John Jay was Supreme Court justice. Didn't really stick because you, you kind of got the feeling that John Jay. I thought Criminal College would have been a much mm-hmm. better nickname for him. Yes. Firm. The criminologist. Yes. The stop and frisk uh, <laughs> uh, double blind study. Yes. <sighs> But when there is an opportunity out there, and just because it's not in the cultural sweet spot of the people doing the podcasts or doing the highlights, and that very narrow cultural sweet spot, I'm not even talking about that, oh, world music. I'm not even talking about, what about Earl Sweatshirt and some of the more challenging hip-hop avant-garde artists. I'm talking about... Green Bay Packer tight end Richard Rodgers and to my knowledge there has never been a reference to the greatest musical collaborator in the history of musical theater and think of the possibilities you're talking about Richard Rodgers on a podcast you can't there's there's almost no joke you can't make or Richard Rodgers has the ball he's running he's, he's at the 16 going on 17 right <laughs> Richard Rodgers grabs it in whiskers on kittens those are a few of his favorite things Things. Or if Richard Rodgers eludes Jordan Hill of the Seahawks or gets past Will Hill of the Giants, you could say the hills are alive, right? With Richard Rodgers. <laughs> <laughs> so long, farewell. He's by you, Auf Wiedersehen, goodbye. You know the Packers played the Chiefs in I think week two. They killed them. Did anyone mention when Richard Rodgers got two? receptions totaling 15 yards. Did anyone mention, hey, everything's up to date in Kansas City? Did they liken him to the wind come sweeping down the plane? You know, I know that June Jones is now with SMU, but he used to be a head coach in the NFL, and imagine if he was Richard Rodgers head coach, and Richard Rodgers made a great play. Then we could say, June is busting out all over. Here comes Richard Rodgers. He's at the 16, going on 17. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry. The possibility is endless, (laughs) but oh you culturally blind commentators. The great American songbook awaits you in the form of Richard Rodgers. Just ask him. He's going to wash this trend right out of your hair. He's bringing down the Hammerstein.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: I was going to say, do you know uh, Mike, who was drafted by the St. Louis Rams in the second round of this year's draft? Who was it? Rob Havenstein.
0: Rodgers and Havenstein. <laughs> That's good.
2: They've got. We've got to team them up somehow. Yep.
0: All or just uh, right. former NFL quarterback Sean King, then we could, he could refer to the King and I. I mean, that'll count, too. The guy wrote everything.
2: <laughs> Stefan, what is your Chelsea pensioner?
4: Well, the New York Metropolitans, as you both know, are in the baseball playoffs. And as a vestigial Yankees fan, I could give a shit. But I've always had a soft spot. For Funny how me- your
2: vestigiality of your Yankees fandom seems to correlate with their uh, success, but continue.
4: Yeah, I've always had a soft spot, though, for Meet the Mets, which is, of course, the fight song written for the exciting return of National League baseball to the Outer Boroughs in 1962 when the team went 40 and 120. You know the song? Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets.
5: Bring your kiddies, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball.
4: love the original Meet the Mets catchy tune good clean lyrical fun puts a pep in your baseball step Meet the Mets was written by Ruth Roberts not Richard Rogers, and uh, Bill Katz, pretending to be a classical music reviewer, New York Times sports writer, Leonard Coppett wrote in 1963 There is little in the score of interest to a mid 20th century audience. The harmony is traditional. No influences of atonality or polytonality can be found. In fact, it's sort of untonal. As a kid, I loved Meet the Mets because it was wacky packages, easy to parody. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and beat the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Watching the Mets, will be the laugh of your life because the Mets are really missing the ball, giving up home runs over the wall. And as the Yankees ascended in the mid-1970s, the Mets sucked. Beat the Mets was too easy. But I did not know that like other classic songs from the Star Spangled Banner to Baba Black Sheep, Meet the Mets has a second verse. Let's give it a listen. Mike and Josh, feel free to jump in here with your comments.
5: Oh, the butcher and the baker and the people on the streets, where do they
4: go? Where do you think the butcher and the baker and the people on the streets went? Out to Shea, Flushing, New York. <laughs> Close. To meet the Mets. And if you're wondering what the butcher and the baker are doing now that they've gone to meet the Mets, here's the answer.
5: Oh, they're hollering, they cheering, and they're jumping in their seats. Where do they go? To meet the
2: Mets. I think, I think the butcher could really meet the Mets in, in uh, any number of ways. Yeah.
4: Well, I think the lyrics ask us again where they went, because without the butcher and the baker, the neighborhood is void of commerce, let alone human life. Everyone's at Shea. Mm -hmm. All right, let's wrap up this verse, signal the key change, and get back to basics.
5: All the fans are true to the orange and blue,
2: so hurry up and come on down, because we got ourselves
4: In 1984, and I'm sure Mike remembers this, the team rewrote the lyrics and re-recorded it with some early 80s sax, pumping yeah. drum lines, female vocals, out went, bring your Kiddies, bring your wife, and because someone in marketing probably noted that the team's fan base was greater than the east side and west side, this ode to the New York metropolitan area was added. New Jersey, not part of New York town, no reference to Connecticut, they've ceded that to the Yankees fans. Staten Island fr- also,
0: that's pretty significant, I think.
4: Staten Island, no reference
0: Doesn't to Doesn't work Island. with the rhyme scheme, but they're also right. Disgraceful. Yes.
4: All right. The, the Mets uh, put that nightmare behind them two years later with a remarkable World Series music video starring the entire locker room of Coke sniffers with cameos, and this is an amazing list by Joe Piscopo, Howard Stern, Twisted Sister, Robert Klein, Tony Bennett, Soupy Sales, Melba Moore, Dr. Joyce Brothers, Hal Linden, and Gene Shalit. Dr. Joyce Brothers can't be real. Dr. (laughs) Joyce Brothers. Lenny Dykstra and Roger McDowell went on MTV, where Dykstra hit on VJ, Martha Quinn. We'll roll that in the credits. Not the part about Dykstra hitting on Martha Quinn, (laughs) but the song.
2: I thought the Doctor Joyce Brothers was just a reference to the Naked Gun announcers' booth. No, she's real. I just
4: like <laughs> New York you can, celebrity.
2: You can look at the progress for for womankind through the Meet the Mets. You know, just in twenty years' time, women won the right to sing about the Mets. Mm-hmm.
0: I would just Amazing. I would also like to add that they were wise to write off Staten Island, or maybe as a consequence of writing off Staten Island, Staten Island has a higher concentration of loyalists than uh Yankee loyalists than any other borough. Seventy two percent of the one oh three oh two and one oh three one oh zip codes liked the Yankees over the Mets. There
4: you go. Josh, what's your Chelsea pensioner?
2: I recently ran across an excerpt from a book called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, which is about football in the years before the game was on TV. There's a lot of fun stuff in there. But the excerpt I found on uh, Football Outsiders, the website, was about the history of prison football and how it started at Sing Sing in 1931, um, an excerpt here. The warden at Sing Sing Prison, the Associated Press reported was starting a football program and was looking for volunteer coaches. The New York Giants immediately responded, the story said. They announced that six players would be, quote-unquote, incarcerated long enough to give the Sing Sing boys a few pointers. The next year, the Giants signed a Sing Sing graduate, 220-pound fullback Jumbo Murano and sent him to the Patterson Nighthawks of the Eastern Football League. Murano never played in the NFL, though. But another Sing Sing alumnus, Alabama Pitts, Got into three games with the Philadelphia Eagles in 1935. Who is this Alabama Pitts? We now turn to the book Outlaw Ball Players by R.G. Hank Utley, Tim Peeler, and Aaron Peeler. There's also a great uh, bio for him on the Society of American Baseball research site. There will be a baseball element coming in here soon. Um, Edwin Collins Pitts was born in 1909, was nicknamed Alabama by his mother to distinguish him from his father, who was born in Georgia. After getting out of the Navy, Pitts was arrested after stealing $76.25 from a grocery store in an armed robbery. He was sentenced to eight to 16 years in Sing Sing. Uh, There, he played for a team called the Black Sheep, a football team coached by a man named John Law, who had played football at Notre Dame. The guy's name was John Law. (laughs) He coached the football team at Sing Sing. Did he have long Uh, arms? Incredibly long, just an amazing uh, standing reach. Pitts was written up in the New York Times in 1932 as a prison football star. In 1933, the Times said that he demonstrated he is equally at home on the diamond. He hit 500 with eight home runs and 21 baseball games. In 1934, the LA Times called him the most prominent jailbird athlete in America, wow. and he actually started trying out with teams before he was released from prison. An international league team called the Albany Senators signed him, but there was so much controversy that the president – of the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues invalidated the deal, writing to the Sing Sing Warden, shall the ranks of organized baseball be open to ex-convicts? I construe it my duty to answer in the negative. The book Outlaw Ball Players claims that the alabama pit story fascinated the country uh, for two weeks, that no story since the Lindbergh kidnapping had commanded as much attention an editorial writer in the Charlotte Observer compared pitch to Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. Baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, not exactly known for his leniency, ruled in Pitt's favor, saying that barring him from baseball would perhaps have a destroying effect on his entire career. Listen up, Roger Goodell. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a man of great forbearance. So the thing was that Alabama Pitts wasn't that great at baseball. Uh, the Sabre Bio Project notes that his uh, speed and fielding prowess consistently drew raves. He moves well. He's got speed. He's got fine judgment on uh, fly balls. But he was overmatched against international league pitching, which was just one step below major league pitching. He had 233 in one of his first seasons. He struggled in those seasons, but he was a strong gate attraction, and he was so strong that the Philadelphia Eagles football team signed him in 1935, owner Burt Bell paid him the lavish sum of $500 per game. A decade later, Bell did an interview with a newspaper reporter, which was quite hilarious, his description of uh, the Alabama Pitts era for the Philadelphia Eagles. He says, Pitts was just ordinary, not even fair as a player, but he wasn't any worse than the rest of our boys that day, and I was paying him $500 a game. He certainly should have been in there. The coach uh, finally relented and sent him in while the crowd let out a roar. I guess the Bears were tired or something, for Alabama caught a couple of passes during the time he was in the game, about five minutes. After the game was over, Pitts called me aside in the clubhouse and said in a superior tone, Mr. Bell, I looked great out there today. I want a raise. That was the end of Mr. Alabama Pitts with the Philadelphia Eagles. The story ends as my afterballs occasionally do ignominiously. On June 7th, 1941, according to the Sabre Bio Project, Pitts was stabbed to death in a tavern in North Carolina when he tried to dance with a woman that another man was dancing with. It teaches us all a very important lesson about dancing in the 1940s. Um, Here's a description from the Outlaw Baseball Players book. Pitts and two of his teammates went to a well-known roadhouse, a combination dance hall and service station located beside a swimming pool Not where you want to be. Around 3 a.m., Pitts, apparently quite drunk, attempted to dance with a young lady, Miss Mildred Deal. She had come to the club in the company of Miss Kate Smith, and the two young ladies were escorted by cousins Roy and Newland Lefevers. Newland Lefevers was dancing with Miss Deal when Pitts decided to cut in. Never cut in on Newland Lefevers. He was slashed. He was slashed only once, the blade of the knife laying the muscle of the right arm open and severing the large artery. Not a good scene for Alabama Pitts. His funeral was on June 8th, 1941. The Sabre Bio Project reports that it drew an estimated 5,000 people. Paul Bears were the Valdez teammates with whom he'd shared a field only a few hours before his death, before the team's next game. His former teammates lined up, heads bare, eyes filled with tears, and a silent salute to their center fielder, Alabama Pitts. Got to be a movie about this guy.
4: LaFeevers well, not... was convicted of murder, but the sentence was overturned after he had served a few months because of evidence showing that Pitts was drunk and acting aggressively at the time of the altercation. Mm. <laughs> Stefan
2: is not, not a big fan of 1940s... Uh, Justice. <laughs> uh,
4: he was asking for it.
2: Yeah, We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Patey? Remember Alabama pits and thanks for listening. No us
1: now. We're gonna do it again. It's not a question of how. It's just a matter. It's just a matter. Let's go. Let's go.
0: Lucky Land Casino asking for-